Good morning, IDC. So good to be with you all this morning as we sit under the authority of the scriptures together. I, uh, I'm excited for this summer uh, for a number of reasons, one of those being that uh, after many years of faithful service, uh, Pastor Tony's getting to enjoy a time of sabbatical, uh, and during that time, uh, we're going to be blessed by hearing from so many in our congregation uh, who I believe the Lord has gifted uh, to serve this body. And so it's going to be a, just a sweet time of seeing just how deep the bench is at IDC uh, with the various preachers we'll get to sit under. Uh, however, this week you have me. Uh, so let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Father, we come to you this morning with our hearts uh, postured in humility, wanting to be shaped by your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do just that, that as we hear your word preached, um, Lord, that we would not be hearers, but that we would be doers, that the shape of our lives individually and as a community would take the shape of your word. And so, Lord, mold us not just as individuals, but as a collective body of believers. Make us more Christ-like and do so through your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm excited for sabbatical uh, time so that you can hear from a lot of different preachers. One of the other things I'm excited about this summer is summer travel season. Uh, my kids are getting ready to be out of school here just in a few days. And my honest answer right now is I am genuinely excited about taking some time to travel together and enjoy some family vacation. I might feel different in a couple of months after having done all of that, but right now I'm super pumped about it. Um, and so one of the things I'm excited about with that is we take an annual trip down to Destin, uh, Florida. We pile the whole family into the minivan and we drive for 12 hours to go enjoy some beach time. And you might be thinking, why Destin? Aren't there beaches that are closer? And the answer is absolutely. There are beaches that are much closer than 12 hours away. Uh, but we pile into the minivan and we endure 12 hours on the road because we think this beach is worth it. It's beautiful. Uh, the water is like this mixture of blue-green uh, that I didn't know the name of this morning, but uh, Sam Ammons uh, let me know it's emerald. Uh, so, you know, maybe that means something to you. You read the labels on the Crayola box. It's a beautiful blue-green color uh, like no other. And the sand is so soft. It's like walking on flour, uh, which maybe doesn't sound great, but trust me, it's so soft, it feels great on your toes. And so we endure the road trip to get to the beach and enjoy this time together. And I say endure because if you have ever been in a vehicle with small children, you know that it actually is an enduring that you have to put up with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it. That was the sermon. Thanks, guys. Um, if you've not been in a car with small children, I want you to just to take a moment and praise the Lord that he has spared you this particular form of judgment. It is an ordeal, right? They have so much luggage for such little people. They have so many opinions about what things happen and when they happen. And of course, the worst part of traveling with little kids is the bathroom situation. There's not much you can do to prepare for that, um, but I am a preparer. I'm a planner. I've got a system for everything, and I've got a very sim simple system for the bathroom situation in the car. Go when we stop, right? That's it. That's the system. When we stop, go. My kids rebel against this system, right? We stop, we go, at least I think we do. We get in the car, and about 15 minutes down the road, you hear a little voice from the back seat call out, Daddy, I have to go potty. And no matter how much you try to figure out, can you hold it for like eight more hours? Like, how, how soon do you have to go? We're going to have to stop. 
and when you stop in that scenario, you will absolutely stop at the dirtiest, sketchiest <laughs> gas station in America. Um, somehow there's three or four of them, and you will hit all of them on the road trip. You're going to bring your kids into this gas station, wishing you could just get to your destination, and you're going to wonder, is this a gas station or is this an active crime scene? You will discover, this is how I die. From whatever infection we're going to catch in here, this is how we're going to go. But anyways, we endure all of that, right? Because the beach is worth it. We think it's so worth it, we keep doing this to ourselves year after year after year. But it's worth it, right? Have you ever done something like that, right? Maybe it's an actual destination that is, uh, you have to go through a lot of trouble to get there. It takes a lot of work, but it's worth it, right? Maybe it's a metaphorical destination. I know a lot of you guys are seminary students, and you are enduring a long season of classes and odd jobs to make ends meet, but you know that it's worth it because when you graduate with a seminary degree, any number of highly lucrative jobs await you. <laughs> you may have to check our math on that. Well, today, we're going to embark on a journey with Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, from here on out, we are journeying to Jerusalem, right? Uh, except Jerusalem's not actually the destination. Jerusalem is part of the route. Jerusalem is a stop along the way. The text tells us that Jesus is actually on his way to resurrection. He is going to be taken up to the Father. But on the way there, he does have to pass through Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, death awaits. He will ascend to heaven. He will resurrect. But the path there leads through death and death on a cross. His disciples, they're also on a journey. But they don't quite know what kind of journey they're on. They're about to find out. All along this road, there's just tons of road signs. There are landmarks, and they're all pointing to Jesus. If you've ever traveled uh, up or down I-95 between North and South Carolina, you know that all the signs on that road point to a place called South of the Border. Uh, you may have stopped there to go to the bathroom and wondered, will I die today? All the signs on this road point to Jesus being like no other. There is only one. It's Jesus. And so as we travel down the road together, I want you to know every sign we will see will point us to his supremacy over everything. If you forget everything else, recognize that. That there is no one else like Jesus. And there is no greater destination than his embrace. All the trials, all the hardships along the road, they will absolutely be worth it. Absolutely. He is worth it. It's not an easy road. It's not a road we end up on by accident or stay on by passivity. But ultimately, it's a road that Jesus has paved for us, his people, to walk down. And so Jesus is calling us to follow him down this road with unwavering devotion, the road he has walked before us. And so as we start our little road trip this morning, I want to point out three considerations for the road. First, we'll look at the resolve needed for the road. We'll look at rejection along the road. And finally, we'll take a look at three requirements of this road. So let's follow him together. First, let's look at resolve, the resolve that is needed for the road. And specifically, it's Jesus' resolve, right? When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. First, I want you to see God's plan and his power. 
the days drew near tells us that this is happening on God's timing. It is not an accident of history. It is not a fortunate mistake. It is God's plan at work that Jesus would complete the mission. And he set a time and a place for this to be completed. And so the days draw near, God is in control of the plan and he has the power to accomplish the plan. And he will do it and he did do it. Taken up, what does that mean? It's ascension language. The NASB actually translates it as the ascension. The days are drawing near for Jesus to return to the Father, his mission accomplished, his victory complete, and take his seat at the Father's right hand. But the road there will take him through death, through Jerusalem. But Jesus, he's not passive in this, right? He's not looking at the road ahead saying, I had no choice in this. I'm stuck on this roller coaster. I'm stuck on this train. He sets his face toward Jerusalem. What does that mean? It's Old Testament language. It's used when God calls the prophets to fulfill a task. He tells them to set their face toward Jerusalem. Isaiah 50 says, I set my face like flint. It's this language of fierce dissolve, steady determination, and that's how Jesus looks ahead to the cross. Do you ever procrastinate? Maybe you hit the snooze button a few times. Maybe when you were in school, you were that person that just waited to the last possible moment to write a paper. Not me, never did any of those things. I've actually heard from an alarming number of you uh, over the past few weeks just how much you put off basic adult things like going to the dentist for cleanings or getting annual physicals. And I get it. Like We put off the things that we don't want to do, the things that are hard or uncomfortable. We put them off. But this isn't what Jesus did when he looked at the cross before him. Death, a painful death, a brutal death, an undeserved death, he did not put it off. He looked ahead to the cross and said, I will do that. Do you understand what that means for you as the one who receives this love from Christ? He knew the cost. He knew it. He knew what it would take to accomplish your salvation. And he loved you all the way to Jerusalem where he took your cross and mine. Maybe you have felt rejected in the past. You haven't felt valued by someone. Maybe you grew up with a parent who you could never please. Maybe there's a spouse who neglected or abandoned you. Maybe in your past, there's the wake of broken relationships that have left the scars on your heart of rejection. You feel like damaged goods. Maybe the stains of sin are so deeply set that you think this could never come out in the wash. And yet, consider that Christ knew all of those things. Then, when he set his face toward Jerusalem, he knew your sin and shame. He knew your story. He knew your pain. And he loved you to the end. That's the kind of love that God has for you. And that is good news for any of us who have ever felt overlooked or rejected, who have ever felt too dirty to ever be made clean, that's the kind of love Jesus has for us. Jesus looks at our ugliness and he says, I love you. I will die and I did die and I accomplished it for you. 
That's how much he's loved us, all the way to Calvary. Not because there was some good in us, not because there was something lovely in us or lovable in us, but because he's good and so gracious. He did it and he accomplished it for us. We should rejoice daily, regardless of the circumstance, because that's the kind of love that Jesus has for us that could not be overcome by our sin, but rather overcomes our sin. Praise God for that. His eyes never deviated from the purpose. And so you can rest assured in that love. You can sleep well tonight and awake in the morning assured in that love because it's not just words on a page. He did it. He accomplished it for us. But this good news of Jesus' grace, of Jesus' love and paying for sin, it's scandalous. And it's not well received by all. In fact, as soon as he sets his face toward Jerusalem, we encounter friction, opposition, namely in the form of rejection along the road. Verse 52 tells us, he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations. So this is simple enough, right? There's no Airbnb. They can't just pull out an app and book a room on the way, you know, there. Somebody's got to go ahead and make preparations, figure out where are all these people going to stay, where are they going to eat? It seems a simple enough task, except that it's complicated by one small detail. The Jews and the Samaritans hate each other. They do not get along. It is not as simple as it seems. If only there was an app, but there's not. It's helpful if we know a little bit of the background here, and so I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes uh, version, uh, but you can look this up uh, starting in uh, 2 Kings 17. Uh, The idea is there's this region called Samaria, and Israel lives there, but Israel sins against the Lord, faces his judgment, and they were carried away by the king of Assyria into exile. And when the king of Assyria sends them away, he brings other people to inhabit that land. Uh, Gentiles, idolatrous people of various sorts, and they inhabit this region. And as soon as they get there, they are plagued by lions. Yes, lions. Uh, It's like the plot of a horror movie. You know, they move in, they think, wow, great new land, this is wonderful, except there's a lion and it's going to eat us right? So not ideal. Uh, Maybe the kind of thing you want to check out before you close on the deal. Uh, But nonetheless, there are lions that are eating them. And so at some point, some very wise person says, hey, maybe, maybe there's a God of this land that we're not honoring, that we're not, you know, worshiping. And that's why we're being cursed by these lions. So let's send for a priest from the people that we sent away and have him come here and teach us the ways of this uh, land, the God of this land. So a priest from Israel comes teaches them the worship of Yahweh, who God is. Uh, But spoiler alert, they don't just convert, they just add the worship of Yahweh, the true God, to their laundry list of other gods that they worship. It's called syncretism. Down the road, there's intermarriage between Israel and the Samaritans. In the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, they are the ones who oppose the effort, um, and they hold that the worship of God is not in Jerusalem, as Israel would say, but rather on Mount Gerizim, some other mountain. Uh, And so there's deep division between these two people, right? It runs across generations. So how does Israel see them? Well, to Israel, the Samaritans, they represent religious corruption, defilement, and ethnic impurity. You know when you come across uh, a cheap knockoff and it's so egregious in its infringement of copyright law that you yourself are a little bit offended, right? It's not your copyright. You're just offended that they think you're foolish enough to fall for it. 
Like you walk into the grocery store and you're looking for some Mountain Dew and as you look through the aisles, you come across, you know, Big Hill Morning Mist. And you're like, what is that? You're like, do they think I'm a fool that I can't notice this? I came here for Sunkist. I am not going to settle for Star Smooch, right? Like, I'm not an idiot. That, that's the degree of like, looking down on that Israel has for the Samaritans. They're the cheap knockoff. We are the people of God, and they are just pretenders to that, and they are tarnishing it. But what about the Samaritans? To the Samaritans, Israel is the, they're the entitled and uppity elitists. If you know Parks and Rec, it's like Eagleton versus Pawnee, right? Like, that, that's the dynamic there. Of course they look down on us. Of course they think their version of, the, version of this religion is the pure one. Of course they think we have corrupted their pure ethnic lineage. Of course. And there's another problem. Galileans who are on the way to Jerusalem would encounter Samaria. And so they'd have to make a choice. Are we going to go through the stinky place with the people that we don't like or will we go around and take the long way, make the trip longer? Some actually chose to go around and avoid it altogether. Some said, let's hold our noses and walk through there. And when they did, the Samaritans won no awards for hospitality. They were not exactly welcoming. But enter Jesus. Jesus, who is ushering in the kingdom, who knows it's not bound by ethnic lines. It's not bound by borders. He is making a new people through his blood one people and so jesus doesn't go around samaria he enters the rejected place he enters because he's bringing the kingdom with him you would think they'd receive him with open arms but at least one village didn't they reject him and they reject him because he's on his way to jerusalem the promised messiah is here he's ushering in god's plan for salvation the kingdom is here but their prejudice is so deep, they want no part of it. You're on your way to Jerusalem. We're good. They're blinded by hatred. Those ethnic and religious divisions, they've closed them off to what God is doing. But what about us? Are we too enlightened? We're too modern for that kind of sensibility? How do we respond when God shows up in the lives of our enemies? How do we take it when he's at work in those we don't like? Do we desire their salvation or are we rooting for judgment? You probably don't have enemies though, right? Because we're Christians. But does your social media feed know that you don't have enemies? At least some of those social media feeds have been overlooked. Maybe you feel justified, right? Some people get your blood boiling over their ridiculous opinions. Maybe you feel justified because they reject the truth. They reject God. They hate us. They're compromising on the gospel. They're destroying this country. Any of that sound familiar? Are you praying for the salvation of those people? Or are you anticipating their judgment? Where is racial bias blinding you to what God is doing? Where is your religious tribalism blocking you from participating in the unity that Christ accomplished? And where are political ideologies superseding the call of God's call? It's not just the Samaritans. It's us too. There's a warning for us. Jesus' mission cuts right through our little tribal village. Will we welcome him and let him disrupt the old order? Or are we going to hold on to those old systems? 
those systems that continually fail us. The Samaritans, they were convinced they were right in their worship of God. They were so convinced they missed God entirely. But it's not just the Samaritans who are convinced of their rightness. In verse 54, enter James and John, the sons of thunder, as Mark calls them, and they are living up to their name. The Samaritans did what? Excuse me? Excuse me? Who do they think they are? You ever felt like that? You ever felt just slighted or indignant? Maybe you've been waiting for a parking spot for about 20 minutes with your turn signal on so the whole world knows that spot is mine. As soon as that person wakes up from their nap and backs out, it's mine, right? You wait patiently. At times you wonder, have they died? Should I call someone? But finally the car backs away and you can taste the glory of that spot for whatever your reasons are for wanting it. It's almost yours. But before you can pull in, somebody comes in from the other side, no turn signal, no 20-minute wait. They just take the spot from you. This is a good time to call down fire from heaven. How dare they? Don't they know we have rules around here? A little fire from heaven, that'll, that'll sort this out. That's, that's about where James and John are at, overreacting just a little bit. I, you know, have been known once or twice in my life to have overreacted, uh, just once or twice, uh, and one of those was a few years ago. The uh, under-sink uh, disposal started leaking, just kind of grossness, and so, of course, I don't know what I'm doing, and I call someone who does, and call Michael Britt. And Michael Britt uh, graciously comes by and he cuts a hole out of the bottom of the cabinet so I can mop up all this water and deal with it. And when he pulls out the bottom of that cabinet, underneath it is just littered with black widow eggs. And I am just scandalized. And obviously the only solution is to burn down the whole house, get the family out, <laughs> burn it down, and we'll just rebuild and start all over. It's a bit of an overreaction, but that's about where James and John are. Jesus you are obviously going to smoke these fools who have rejected you. Let's help you out. You don't bother yourselves with the dirty work. I will take care of this. Right? These guys who last week couldn't cast a demon out to alleviate a sufferer, this week feel very confident that they can just send the word and fire will come down from heaven. You imagine putting that on your resume? Proficient in Microsoft Office. Great with people. Fireballs from heaven available upon request. <laughs> it's a real selling point. Their pride is what's on display here. But it's clothed in religious zeal. They have the appearance of defending Jesus' honor, but really it's their own glory that they're chasing. It's their kingdom that is threatened by rejection. It's not God's. It's theirs. You don't have to look too hard today to find equivalents. I think we've all been alarmed and outraged and disgusted in recent weeks by some leaders in the SBC uh, excusing, allowing, covering up, and perpetrating all kinds of evil under the guise of contending for the faith, protecting the mission. We're right to be outraged. We've all turned on our TVs and found uh, some loud voice screaming anger and hatred dressed up in Christian vernacular. We're right to be repulsed by that. But what about us? What little horrors have we perpetrated, excused, ignored, when our little kingdoms have been threatened? It's easy to put a facade up that looks like contending for the faith 
when really it's our pride on the line, when really it's the sake of our name that we're concerned about. So many have misunderstood the mission as one of triumphalism here and now. And when that kingdom gets threatened, oh, there's fire all right, but not the holy kind. In last week's passage, the prophet Elijah made an actual appearance uh, at the transfiguration. This week, we see uh, some more subtle allusions to Elijah throughout the text. And one of those is through this fire from heaven. He actually could have put on his resume fireballs from heaven. It was kind of his shtick. Uh, at Mount Carmel, he defeats the prophets of Baal through fire from heaven. Later, uh, he's on the run, and uh, the king of the Samaritans sends uh, two units of soldiers to him, and twice he calls down fire from heaven. So really could go on his resume. But in this passage and in others, the idea of fire from heaven is reserved for God's righteous judgment over his enemies. So it is holy fire that comes down from heaven. It is God executing judgment on those who would oppose him. And that's what James and John want. They want God to judge now. It's time for judgment, Lord. Judge them. Jesus knows there's a time for judgment. Jesus knows sin will not go unchecked forever. Evil will not go unfettered. But today is not that day. Today, Jesus is here on the road to Jerusalem to pay the price for sin with his own life. He's here to proclaim the good news that those who are far off, those who are under judgment, can have their judgment fulfilled at the cross and instead become the people of God. That's what Jesus is here to do. James and John, they miss it. They miss it entirely. In humble obedience to the Father, Jesus isn't shocked by rejection He's not scandalized. He expects it, and he tells his disciples to expect it. You might expect that Jesus, at their epic failure once again, earning an A-plus and totally not getting it, would just rip into them, let them really have it. Luke doesn't record for us what the rebuke looks like, and maybe that's a grace to James and John. Maybe it's, it's for their benefit. It's like, they were rebuked. That's all you need to know. But there's two things we want to note here. First is, Jesus really could have just been done with his disciples then. He could have said, you know what? You don't get it. You don't understand what kind of work I'm trying to do. Forget it. Just stay here. I'll go on without you. Or he could have judged them. He could have said, how dare you not get it? I'll bring down fire from heaven on you. Would have been justified to do any of those because he's holy and righteous. And yet he loves his disciples. In fact, he loves them by rebuking them by not leaving them in their error. If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to know there is rebuke for you as well. We all will fail at some point. We all will commit some form of spiritual malpractice, as James and John did. We will get it wrong. And when we do, we will need the Father's loving correction. And so our posture ought to be one of expecting the loving discipline of our Lord and not being surprised when it comes, not rejecting when it comes, but rather receiving it in humility. And the second thing is, Jesus goes on with his mission. Neither the rejection nor the epic failure of his disciples stops the mission, right? And so when we encounter rejection, that's not the time to wonder, is this whole thing falling apart? The mission goes on. And when we fail, or when others who call themselves Christians fail, it is not the time to wonder, is this the end of the road? 
has the church met its match. It doesn't rest on us. God will accomplish his mission. He works through us, yes, but he will accomplish it, not us. And so it's not a time for despair. We'll continue down the road here, looking at some gracious parameters that Jesus gives us for life on the road. So we're going to take a look at three requirements of the road. I made these into little rules for you just so they're easy to keep up with. The first one we find in verse 57. He's going along the road. Someone says to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Requirement number one, there's no home in this world. There's no home in this world. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. They have somewhere in this world where they belong. That's where they go to be at rest. That's where they belong. That's where they fit in. Son of man, this is not his home. He's here on the way to Jerusalem. And those who will follow him similarly have no home here. You might have a deed. You might have a mortgage. You might have a storage unit where you keep all your stuff. Your home is not here. You're a pilgrim on the way somewhere else. Do we get that? Or are we settling in comfortably in this life? Are we preparing for the long haul here as if this is all that there is or are we living as pilgrims? Jesus' disclaimer is not just about amenities. Yes, life on the road is hard, but it's about more than that. Are you ready to part with all the seeming securities of this world or are you clinging hard and fast to those? What could we trust more than what the Savior has promised? Are we under the impression that we can have dual citizenship, that we can serve two masters, that we can be at home here and in heaven? Or ought we not to live as those who are passing through on mission? Requirement number two, there's no delaying discipleship. To another, he says, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father it's not clear to us if the father is already dead or if it's anticipated, but we, what we do know from the scriptures is that the command to honor mother, mother and father is from God. That is a God-given command. But what Jesus is doing here is he's setting it in its right context. The love and the honor of mother and father is not supreme. It's not ultimate. In that top slot of our lives is love for God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And everything else, however good it might be, is below that. It's beneath that. So just as later when Jesus says that anyone who comes to him but doesn't hate his father and mother and the rest of the family isn't fit, it's the same idea. It's good to love and honor. It's good. But there is a greater good. And that greater good is God himself. And so God is not telling this would-be disciple to just leave the father unburied. Rather, he's saying, let the dead bury their own dead. That's significant. What he is saying is, let those who are spiritually dead focus on the matters that belong to this world that is passing away. This world is dying and those who have been made alive have more important things to focus on. We've got a bigger task at hand. Can you imagine being in some kind of legal trouble? You imagine this, or I won't do it for you. 
and a lawyer comes along offering to help. And you go to that lawyer and you say, look, I do have some legal troubles, but I would really love your help with the laundry. I am just super behind. I've got piles and piles of clothes that need to be sorted and folded. Can you help with that? What a waste, right? Like you've got, you've got legal troubles and legal help and you're going to waste it on the laundry. Similarly, what a waste when God's people who have been made alive in Christ waste their lives focusing on things that others could attend to. And so now that doesn't mean that we just ignore the cares of this life, that we don't worry about physical needs. It means we go about that in such a way that reflects the reality that we are living for the kingdom. Burial is not unimportant. We can't just leave this deceased person unburied. But we also can't pretend like burial will solve our problems when what we need is resurrection. And you and I, if we're in Christ, we're, about to be, we're to be about the business of resurrection, not burial. And so let's go about life in such a way that reflects that priority. Burials have to happen, but resurrection is more necessary. And so as we pursue the Lord, let's do so in a way that reflects the truth. The truth that there is another stop beyond Jerusalem, the ultimate one. Let's proclaim that good news. Let's do that. Third requirement for the road. There's no looking back. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. This is another allusion to the ministry of Elijah. This is the same request that Elisha makes when Elijah calls him. So I'll give you a little bit of the background there. Again, Cliff Notes version. Elijah has defeated the prophets of Baal, calling down fire from heaven. And after that resounding victory, he finds himself on the run. Jezebel wants his head. And Elijah is depressed and despairing of life itself. He cries out to the Lord multiple times, saying things like, Lord, I am very jealous for you. I'm the last one left who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. And because of that, they want my head. Just go ahead and kill me. And God responds to Elijah. He gives him a to-do list. He says, you're going to anoint some new kings. They're going to wipe out those who are pursuing your life. I'm taking care of it. I've selected your successor. His name is Elisha. Go find him. Oh, and by the way, you're not the last one. There's 7,000 remaining in Israel who have not bowed the knee. So in short, Elijah, God's mission doesn't depend on you. It doesn't come down to you. God will accomplish his mission. Thank you very much. And so the weight that Elijah is crushed by actually is God's weight to lift. He is bearing a weight that isn't his to lift. So he goes and he finds Elisha plowing in a field. And when Elisha says, can I go say goodbye? He says, sure, for what have I done to you? He's feeling the weight of, I, I think I've just called this guy to a life of rejection and suffering and always being on the run of bearing a weight too heavy. So sure, go and say goodbye. This might be your last chance to do that. But Jesus isn't like this. In fact, Jesus tells this would-be disciple not to say goodbye. Why does he do that? Well, Jesus is not Elijah. He's not like him. He actually is the faithful one. 
the only faithful one. God's plan of salvation actually does rest on Jesus' shoulders. It does come down to him. And to that immense weight, he doesn't buckle under the pressure like Elijah. He doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't despair. He lifts it and he sets his face to the death that awaits him, carrying your burden and mine. That is the Jesus that we worship. That is the Jesus who says, follow me. He's not putting a burden on us too great to lift. He is lifting our burden. He is doing it. He is accomplishing it. And he is inviting us in that. We have so much more than just a prophet in Jesus. So much more than just a man. So much more than a moral example or a thought leader with some good ideas. We have Messiah. We have the deliverer. The one who could lift the weight and did. He's the one who pays for our sin. And there's not just a remnant left in Israel who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. There's better news than that. Those who have bowed the knee to Baal, you and I, he's saving those people and making us worshipers of the true God. He is accomplishing his purpose. He doesn't just have a desire for it. He is doing it by his might. That's the Jesus who invites us down this road. That's the Jesus who says, follow me. He knows the joy that is set before him. He knows the salvation he'll accomplish. And he says to you and I, come with me on the road to resurrection. It passes through the valley of the shadow of death, but death is no match for me. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back because whatever you think you're leaving behind doesn't compare to what comes ahead. It is incomparable to the reward of Jesus himself. So do we believe him? Are we going to follow why would we waste our lives looking back there when life with Jesus lies ahead? Who's fit for this life on the road? Do you feel confident after thinking about the requirements and the rejection and the resolve that's needed? Do you feel good about that? Feel like, I got this. I can handle this. Or is the weight of it too heavy? Who of us would have the confidence to say, I can do it? Wouldn't we all be like Elijah saying, this weight is too much? Behold Jesus. We don't have to bear it. He has. And so when Jesus invites us to follow him down this road, he's not just handing us a map saying, I'll see you at the finish line. Good luck. He is taking your hand in his and walking with you. Those of us who are in Jesus, in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Spirit in us as we walk down this road. Will we receive that? We'll have to, re it'll require everything of us. We'll have to give up everything. We'll have to answer without delay. It's a huge burden that we are not strong enough for, that we're not sufficient for. It is too great. But look at Jesus. When he says, Take the plow, it's in your hand but your hand isn't his. He is not some far-off master giving you impossible instructions. He is the one who paved this road by his own blood. He did it for you. He accomplished it. And so all that is left now is walking with him down that path. It's not an easy path. It's not a simple one. It will require much of us. 
and everything we will need for that journey we have in Him. Maybe you're a Christian this morning and you're thinking, okay, fair enough. Folks, it would be so easy to believe that we can do this on our own strength. If I just read my Bible, if I just pray, if I just check the religious boxes, I'm good. The road will require so much more of you than that. And so the only path for us as Christians is to be fully satisfied in Christ, to recognize the fact that it is His work that has been accomplished, not ours. We get to enjoy Jesus and what He has done for us. And so wherever you feel the temptation to rely on your accomplishments, reject it. It's not fit for the road. Wherever you feel like something you left behind was too good to have passed up, leave it back there. Wherever you feel like the cares of this world are pressing on you and taking your eyes off of the destination, ignore it and set your eyes ahead to what Christ has laid out for us. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're thinking, sounds fine, I guess. This love that Jesus has is available to you as well. Not because you're good, not because you deserve it. In fact, you don't. But He is good, and He is loving, and He is kind. And today, the invitation is open to you that you too could follow down this road, this road where He has accomplished all that needed to be accomplished. It's done. Will you say yes when He says, follow me? Or do you have some excuses? Do you have some distractions? Are there things tethering you to this life that you simply cannot part with? Why? Why cling to death when life is ahead of us? Why? The path of discipleship, of following Jesus, is not one of solitude. Jesus walks with us. Jesus is on that road with his people, here and now. He's leading that exodus. He's not weary or worn down from his labors. The road has not worn him down. He is strong and mighty and leading his people. And so we can look down that road recognizing that it passes through Jerusalem and death, but it goes right through it all the way to resurrection because Jesus has laid out that path for us and all we have to do is receive it and walk it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, who of us could be enough for this road? Who alone could meet the demands? We would fall apart. We would not make it. And even if we could make it to Jerusalem, Lord, we could not ever overcome death on our own. But Lord, we don't need to do any of that. Because you are the one who walked this path before us. You are the one who set your face toward Jerusalem and died our death, paid our price, accomplished our salvation. And Lord, you weren't defeated by the grave. You're victorious over it. And Lord, now you sit at the right hand of the Father having accomplished all the work. And so Lord, would you make us a people who see that work, who receive that work, and who rejoice in the fruits of your labor? Lord, may we gladly walk down the road knowing that you lead us, 
knowing that the work has been done and whatever it might require of us is no cost at all because we get you. Would you shape us by your word? Make us a people fit for the road with our eyes fixed firmly on you. Amen.